The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, quit polishing your water cooling nipples and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 300 with guest Richard Campbell, recorded live Wednesday, December 18th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who just lost his co-host for the day, Carl Franklin. Thank you, thank you, Lawrence. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. Your host with the most on the East Coast, and that's corny, I know, but Richard Campbell out on the West Coast. Give him some love, Richard. Yes, how are you? Here I am. And uh, how many shows? That'd be uh, 300. Wow. Yeah. And I'm the newbie because I've only done 200. <laughs> yeah, only two. A mere 200. Well, yeah, your contract was up after 50, but we just decided to keep it going. I got an email to that effect. So our f- our 100th show was totally big celebration show, right? That was Well, yeah, it was sort of a revelation. I, I you seemed almost shocked. I was shocked. I was. I was oh my god, I can't believe we've done 100. And then the 200th one was kind of fun because we had Rory and Mark Dunn and Mark Miller and everybody was here in the studio and we got to do some, you know, play some uh, quiz show and whatever. The 300th show I don't know. It just it went by so fast. It doesn't seem so momentous. Yeah. Well, it was only last October that we hit two hundred. Right. And so, and you know, now that we're doing two shows a week, a hundred comes up every year. So we we just wanted to do something a little bit laid back, and and maybe we were a little too laid back. We just posted on the blog that we wanted people to send in some stories, and the story that we got was really good, but it was one story. Right. So. Maybe we weren't very aggressive in, in that. Maybe we should have announced on the show or something, but uh, we didn't do that. So um, you, we're going to interview you. I'm going to interview you. Oh, well, I've already been on the show. You have. And in your honor, sir, 
I am ha- pouring myself a glass of uh, some small batch wheat whiskey, which is bourbon, Kentucky straight wheat whiskey, that Don XML brought to my 40th birthday party in August. Oh, funny. I'm drinking a 40th birthday party bourbon as well, Black Maple Creek. This is Bernheim Original. Thanks, Don. Don Demsack. Very nice. The bottle is not dead yet. Just a goes to show you, you know. I'm not the lush you think I am. <laughs> but and, here we are, both sipping bourbon three time zones apart. And now, sir, I sip in your honor. Ah, uh, thank you. And that's very nice, even without ice. Yeah. So, we're not going to do a better no framework. This is probably the most fluff you've ever heard at the beginning of a .NET Rock show since, I don't know, maybe when Rory was on. Because we did a lot of fluff back then. Well, back then it was the variety show. You know, it's hard to imagine because that wasn't that long ago. But right. it was a two-hour all kinds of stuff show. We And you only had a show. It was two hours, but one hour of interview and one hour of insanity. And music. Music and, and all that. All kinds of things. It was fun, but that's what Mondays is for. Anyway, this is ancient history. Before uh, I start talking to Richard, however, I do want to tell you about the... Uh, Insomniac's Call of the Wild. I'm talking about Sleepless in New York. Right. Sleepless in New York was an event that Infusion held um, back in the in the in the fall, wasn't it? Yeah, it was in September. In the September, yeah, early fall. And uh, they basically had some people would sign up for it, and they would fly you to Manhattan and uh, give you training on SharePoint 2007, um, and then an all night project and compete for prizes and things. So it, this is what it's going on. It's beginning January 12th, 2008. It is the Sleepless Roadshow, the ultimate office dev weekend. Beginning January 12th, as I said, the deadline to apply is Sunday, January 6th at 11.59 p.m. Applicants can apply at infusion.com slash sleepless. Calling all insomniacs again. Sleepless is back, and this time we're bringing the best of SharePoint office development and Silverlight training to you for a chance at $100,000 in prizes, including an all-expenses trip to Microsoft's Office System Developer Conference in San Jose. We're coming to Atlanta, Dallas, L.A., Silicon Valley, Chicago, and Washington, D.C., and we're bringing SharePoint's elite, including Microsoft product team members and SharePoint MVPs, who are going to be training you. Uh, There will also be a mystery game show, an overnight developer competition, just like the one we did in New York, and an all-expenses trip for the winning team to San Jose for the Microsoft Office System Developer Conference. You think you got what it takes? Apply now. Infusion.com slash sleepless. And now it is time for our guest and our co-host to merge into one. I don't know. That's kind of weird. Richard, you know, the thing that strikes me about you wherever I go with you is people want to know, and they ask me, what does he do? (laughs) And of course, when the show we did, I didn't talk about me at all. No, you talked about water-cooled PCs and flying cars. That was show 69. That was when you were a guest the first time. But what? okay, tell us, what do you do, sir? What, today? Yeah, well, tell us tell us the history of Richard. I mean, how did you get? Obviously, .NET Rocks is not the only thing you do. No, although it's not a non-trivial chunk of my time these days. Yeah, and 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 re, you know, actually, t- right now, today, my life is the most normal it's been 
which is kind of funny considering what 15 conferences a year yeah uh three shows a week right you know and a startup company but yeah. I I would consider that normal. I, I mean, everything I do makes sense. The the big thing that's eating my time these days more than anything is Strange Loop. Yeah, and uh, you know, Strange Loop's only really gotten serious. It was a research project for a couple of years, but it was in two thousand six where we said, "Wow, we've really got something here. Let's get to work." And and you were witness to almost all of that when I was losing my mind. I was, and you kept telling us your friends that you know, guys, I've got something unbelievable going on here. I can't talk about it until the patent is out. But when I tell you, you're gonna plop. You know, yeah. you're gonna forehead slap yourself. And uh, you did. You told us uh, when Ken Alstad was the guest on the show the first time. Just briefly tell us what Strange Loop is all about. So Strange Loop was really the realization that if we put a a device, uh, a piece of hardware in front of a web farm, or even in front of a single web server for that matter, uh, that's running ASP.NET, we can do a bunch of stuff to make it run faster, do more. So, you know, the original idea, going right back to the very beginning, was we were really looking for a better solution for session. Yeah. So, you know, the session data, you got to get it out of process if you're going to scale. It's just the right thing to do. But the session solutions that Microsoft offer are just SQL Server and, and State Server. But both of them suffer from the same basic problem, which is every time you send a request in, it's got to go do two round trips, one to fetch the session data, then it renders the page and it writes the session data back out. And our sort of leap of uh, understanding was if you put the session data in front of the web farm and attach to the request as it goes through... It's almost as fast as in process. You basically replace it with a token and keep the keep all the data right there in that box. Yeah, we keep it in the box and we stick it in along the way. And then, you know, as soon as we thought of that, it was like, well, gee, you know, we could do the same thing for view state. Just right. lift the view state out and put it back in when it comes back in. And then you start getting into caching features and the, and the box just cascades. I think the roadmap's now got 25 features on it. Oh, wow. And and that was, I mean, a few years ago when we were just getting going. Now that we're actually shipping the box, uh, you know, things have changed a lot. People want different things. The market has shifted. And so it's really, it's an exciting time when we're going absolutely as fast as we now can. Now, that's got to be a big box with a lot of memory. Is that, that's not a 32-bit machine. And no, of course, everything's all 64-bit, which only makes sense these days. Right. But it's it's not as much as you'd think. You know, now that we're actually out in the field and we're getting real numbers back, we're not stressing the box at all. Hmm. Now we're not running MySpace either. Yeah. Right. But we, you know, it's it's pretty middle of the road. Uh, the normal scale websites. We got really great beta customers that we're working with. These sort of early adopter types that we're having great times with, and they are uh, they're being successful with it. It's making a difference for them. But we're finding yeah, the box can keep up. So we're moving up the stack and taking on bigger and bigger projects here to see uh, how well we can scale it. And just give us a number, you know, in terms of performance. Well, the, our current baseline benchmark, what we measure everything against is a thousand transactions a second. Okay. Which is, again, it's not MySpace scale, but for the majority of your, your mid-band market is exactly what they're looking for. Okay. You know, many sites that we're working on are running under a hundred transactions a second. Oh, wow. So it, you know, it's, it's tough when you actually get to the reality of what a website's doing to find out how much load are we talking about and so forth. But, and we're still scaling up to see how far we can go. There's more to do, but the, the customers we're working with right now, a thousand per second is more than enough. And a thousand transactions per second versus what without the box? 
Well, I mean, that's a different issue. We know our box can manage a thousand transactions a second okay. with, without any trouble. The what we see happening to the web servers when we start doing our thing, and that's you know caching and and session management and view state management and so forth, is we're getting three to five times performance improvements really on well tuned sites. Wow! I think the biggest benchmark I've seen yet on a just a page that was just put together and had no real optimizations on it was eighty times faster. Now, um, did you bring the niceness of Windows configuration to it, or is are, are you you know in the land of XML files and all? Oh, this thing's managed through MMC. It's just like working with IIS. In fact, it appears right there beside IIS in your MMC console. So it's a uh, pardon of the pun, but it's a snap to configure. Very nice, thank yeah. you so much. Well, you yeah, that's absolutely true. You yeah. just set it up and off it goes. Well, one thing that I liked about it was when I saw it was that it you put it in what is it like listen mode and it just watches the data without doing anything and it tells you uh, gives you an idea of what it can do and right. then you can just flip those services on to actually yeah you could turn it up you can set it into a mode where it's just watching the traffic and telling you how much traffic you've got actually it's it's analytics are quite impressive a lot of folks don't know how busy their site actually is you know web logs don't tell the whole story. So uh, being able to monitor in real time the level of traffic on a website is very interesting, even without doing any treatments at all. And and what do you sell it for? Like, I don't, I can't remember. So I'm base not unit's about fifteen thousand dollars. That's actually pretty cheap considering what boxes cost and other yeah, things. Yeah, it, it's not a lot of money, and especially when you put it in the context of typically the kind of optimizations we're doing are the sort of thing you'd spend several developers on right. for several months. Yeah, that's something Kent talks about all the time. Is that you know, ASP.NET has always been good for developers, but you pay the performance and scalability. And so now the developers can still use view state and session just like they want to and then not essentially not worry about it. Well, exactly. You know, ASP.NET is incredibly scalable, and, and MySpace is a proof of that. It is an ASP.NET site. Mm. It's just the way you would code to scale like that is dramatically different than the way you start out coding with ASP.NET. Right. Or, I mean, you know, it changes several times along the way. Gets um, fragile. I mean, the fun part about working on Strange Loop is we're just doing tons of research yeah. into how different sites are architected and how people are scaling and so forth. And we're finding there's lots of different levels of what you got to do. All right. Before we end with Strange Loop, just give us the URL so we can go check it out. Strangeloopnetworks.com. Cool. So, what did you do before Strange Loop? <laughs> <laughs> Because you've been a developer, you've been a database guy, oh, you man, have yeah. a basic IT department in your house, and you run IT departments of other companies remotely. I mean, what? how do you do that? I mean, what do you do? Well, if you <laughs> should we go backwards through time or yeah, forwards let's through go time? Back. Let's go back. Like, I mean, the beginning is so weird, too, because... All right, we'll start at the beginning, then. Because my, my father is an electronics engineer. So, yeah. I mean, literally, the earliest memories I have of is of using a soldering iron. Now, how old were you? About five. So he had you desoldering boards when you were five. That's right. And putting stuff together. I mean, literally, it's all I've ever done. And I fell into microcomputers in, like, 1977... Yeah. Because I was going to Radio Shack to buy parts. Right. <laughs> I was building an electronic rocket countdown timer because it wasn't enough to just go three, two, one and connect the wires together. I wanted a box with three switches on it that would count itself down and then fire the rocket. <laughs> That's awesome. And I had the thing breadboarded out. I knew how I was going to build it. And actually, I was going, I remember this really clearly, 
It was in Westminster, which is not far from where I am right now. And I was going to the Radio Shack there, and I'm 10 years old, and I'm looking for a box, <laughs> a, an electronics, uh, this Project a, a box. plastic box with a metal lid that I could cut into so that I could put this thing in there. Wow. And there was a TRS-80 Model 1 in the corner. Hmm. And it had, what, 4K RAM. Yeah. And the basic, it was no Microsoft basic. That very first basic wasn't even from Microsoft. It was made by some other company. Right. It had three error messages. What, how, and sorry. <laughs> Which was all you needed, really. I mean, if you think about it, every error message in the world comes down to one of those three things. What? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> How? I cannot divide by zero. I'm, it's impossible, right? And sorry, I'm out of memory. I mean, that's all there is. There isn't anything else. It's all been downhill since that day. Oh, my God. But it's true. So true. So I moved into Radio Shack. I don't think I left that place for three months. I just lived there. And, of course, very quickly, the guys in the store figured out that if a 10-year-old kid could make this machine sing and dance, it was easy to convince the 30-year-old uh, you know, professional that he could make it sing and dance, yeah. too. And I bet your dad loved you, huh? Hey, you want to well, go run to Radio Shack? Here's a list of parts. Go. Yeah, go get this. Go do that, right? <laughs> well, and the funny thing is my father was never a computer guy. He was always an electronics guy. Yeah. But – and. A TRS-80 even then wasn't cheap. It was like $1,500. That's right. Yeah. And I'm 10. Right? Yeah. How much money have I got? So, you know, I'm working a paper route and so forth, but I, qu I quickly found out that S100 bus machines were cheaper. Now, and you could get the parts secondhand, and you got to build most of the stuff that came on breadboard. What is that, like a Heathkit thing? Well, this is even before Heathkit was doing computers. It was a couple of years later before Heathkit would do computers. But I've got a Northstar uh, Horizon chassis. Imagine what this is, is a power supply and a bus, right? Huh. Just a series of slots huh. and pretty much nothing else. And then you literally bought cards and you could buy them as breadboards and build your own stuff. Hmm. Or you could, and then you had to go get magazine stuff to figure out what to build in them. And so books. one of them had to be a CPU, obviously. Well, yeah, exactly. So you'd get a, a CPU board, sort of basic kit was a CPU board, a memory board, and an IO board. Huh. And you put these things together and the, the, OS of the day was CPM. CPM. So really, the first machines I owned were S100 bus machines. I eventually did buy a TRS-80, but it was a Model 1 Level 2. And those ran CPM, too. Well, no, the, early, the later ones did. The early one didn't even have an operating system, right? We, we, we really, well, it had a sort of an operating system. But it, and the Level 2 had 16K of RAM. It had 12K of ROM. And it had a mic the Microsoft Basic in it, and everything was loaded off cassette tape. Cassette tape. You know, I knew somebody who had one of those, but it was a little before my time. Well, and and they wise. were they you know pretty quickly we figured out that you had to stick a screwdriver, two of them really, little uh, a jeweler screwdrivers to keep aligning the head on the cassette tape to keep it reading the the, the tapes. Yeah, and you'd keep a log for each one of your tapes of what the as best azimuth angle for that tape was. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, Ooh. it was it was archaic. Well, it but, sort of reminds so my, me of analog recording machines, which had to be cared for and coddled all the time. You couldn't move them. I mean, it was like tuning a piano. You move them, they had to be recalibrated and constantly cleaned because the oxide kept coming off on the heads. And yeah, yeah, you no, know, it was fragile as all get out. But that led to my my first job, and I was twelve, was repairing TRS eighties. 
No kidding. Because I was good with a soldering iron. <laughs> and everybody customized your TRS-80 like mad. They put, they didn't have lower case, right? So there were lower case kits. Uh, there was a, a tweak you could do to the keyboard to make it softer and not bounce so hard. Uh, eventually, we got memory expansion units and, and drive expansion units, all this good stuff. And, uh, and I, I, you know, the stories that come out, that job was hilarious. So the guy who ran it, who I honestly, I cannot remember his name to save my life, but he was one of these guys who quickly figured out where the money was coming from. And so one of the things that kept happening over and over again was that people would, were buying floppy drives and they were trying to save their money. So they'd build their own cases and interfaces for them Hmm. and they'd screw them up every time. And the usual thing, the classic thing was they'd use cheap switches for the for the 120 ac stuff oh and so we'd get these drives back damaged the same way every time and so whenever we weren't actually repairing something he'd have me making up these little plastic bags full of parts for fried drives so you knew right away the guy had fried the drive right it'd be the same thing every time you put the 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 120 volts would short and it would damage the board in a particular way and so then you'd have a it's a it's a $25 fix. And that's how long. This is like 1979, right? It was 25 bucks to repair that drive. Drive cost $1,000. So is it the kind of thing where you get out the schematic and you bl- take the resistors that are blown out and you replace them? Well, and, and we, we knew what an, an overload looked like. So we knew exactly what parts to replace. So we already had them in a bag. So we could get it down to the least amount of time to fix them. So I was really fast. That's cool. At doing those repairs. But every so often, he'd bring something weird in. Like, sometimes it was computer equipment, sometimes it wasn't. One day he shows up with this huge beige box, and I mean huge and heavy. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, what is it? He goes, it's a spectrum analyzer. Cool. I'm like, okay. He says, it's busted. I want you to gut it for parts. Okay. So I start taking this thing apart. Well, inside, you know, the way a spectrum analyzer works is it superheats gas to turn it to plasma, and then it shines a laser through it and looks at the diffraction on the now, laser. Now, here's here's where our minds don't meet. When I think spectrum analyzer, I think the audio spectrum. You're talking right. about physical, chemical, comp- yes. makeup of, the chemical makeup of matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Different kind of spectrum analyzer. Right. That's why the thing was so big. So inside this thing are these capacitors that weigh 10 pounds each. Huh. Right? They're the size of uh, a one-quart Coke bottle. Jeez. You know, the big... And they're big, and they got lug nuts. Don't be around when those things discharge, man. Well, this was my immediate thought. I'm in the (laughs) shop by myself. I pull this thing out. I'm like, well, I got to see how much power I can blow out of these (laughs) things. And they're like one farad capacitors, right? They're incredibly powerful. So I throw it up on the bench... And I clip a couple of uh, leads off a power supply to it, turn the power supply on. And I think, this is going to take a few minutes to charge. So I go back down, start digging around in the case, <laughs> and I hear a little click from up above. I look up, and the side of the capacitor has now expanding outward. Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, that's not good. And I look back down. There's a bright blue flash, Oh. and the room goes dark. Oh. And I feel stuff hitting me. <laughs> and I'm like... What's going on? Right? And it's all dark. I've blown the breaker for the building. So now we go, we go feel our way through, find the breaker, reset the breaker. The capacitor was packed in paper. Oh, those crazy kids. And the paper's blown all over the room now. (laughs) Blowing up capacitors again. That's right. Those kids. And yeah, and my, and my boss is like, you're cleaning this up. (laughs) You did that. (laughs) It was stuff with paper, you said. Oh, it was just 
if they, you know, they're yeah. Imagine ten pounds of paper packed into something the size of a of a Coke bot can. Yeah, yeah. So it was hysterical, like a firecracker almost. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, big bang. Jeez. So that was twelve. Then then what happened? What was next? Oh, you know, I started making money. Uh, well, then DBase two came out. And that really, you know, I was programming in BASIC and in Assembler and, and in, in Z80, but I didn't start really making money until like 1980, 1981, when, when DBase2, and DBase2 was the first version of DBase. You'll never find a DBase1, hmm. but it was available for CPM. And, uh, and so my S100 bus machines ran it great. And hmm. so, and and that was back in a time when you could buy a Z80 card for Apple II. So there were lots of people running around with Apple II. So I, I started building software to do stuff like uh, analyze real estate transactions. Just all kinds of weird huh. odds and ends. But, I, you know, I was a pretty good programmer back then. Didn't you do something with horse racing for a while? Oh, that's like 10 years later. All right, we'll get to that story. <laughs> that's an awesome But you imagine I, I have been programming for 30 years, right? right. So there's this number of different times. But... That, you know, you talked about uh, some time ago, you were talking about these different eras of really, you know, golden days of computing. Right. D-Base was a golden time. Yeah, it was. I was just going from, you know, and I'm still, I'm a teenager, right? Yeah. I'm like 13 and I can program. Yeah. And and I'll work for for peanuts. Right. And I'm whipping these little programs out in D-Base 2 under CPM. Uh, on these Apple IIs and on uh, some of the North Star machines and, and those kinds of things. And then when the, I remember when the IBM PC shipped, it was like 1981, yep. 1982, somewhere in there. The thing I, when I looked at it, I went, wow, run CPM, it'll be useful. Hmm. Right? I, this, this PC DOS stuff was totally unimportant. It ran CPM so we could use it. It was new and there was not any applications for it really when it started. And it was all about what you could write. Right. You know, we, we were always writing our own stuff back then. So, you know, just coding away. It was really, it was really Lotus 123 that brought that machine out, wasn't and it? And that came, a, you know, a couple of years later. Yeah. But you're, you're absolutely right. What put the PC on the, on the map was 123. One, yeah. Because it was fast and yeah. it did exactly what people wanted. Of course, VisiCalc had come up before then. Right. That was the first spreadsheet, wasn't it? It was the very first one. It's yeah. Bricklin and, and the boys. And that actually came up with the Apple II. Yeah. And then, and that sold a lot of Apple IIs. And then the, uh, the, when the PC came along and the thing that, the thing was important about 123 back then was it was fast. Yeah. It was really, really fast because Microsoft had a spreadsheet then called Multiplan. I remember Multiplan. And it was catastrophically slow, like it was just brutal. Hmm. And I, and and you know, I think that was the realization. But the big thing they were the big thing about Multiplan was that it ran on the Apple and on the Atari hmm. and on the Commodore eighty thirty twos and on CPM hmm. and it ran on the PC. Where Lotus one two three ran on the PC and nothing else, hmm. and nobody cared. That's they why it was fast. Yeah, that's what it was for, and that was the end of it. You know, it's, it's a crazy thing. But, you know, D-Base evolved, became D-Base 3, 3 plus, 4. I eventually switched over to Clipper. Well, that was the compiler for D-Base, wasn't it? Right. It was one of the first ones. I mean, the 4 came, Ashton Tate produced a compiler, uh, but they their compiler was, they charged per seat. Hmm. They wanted like 400 bucks for every seat. Huh. And it's, forget it. I'm like, why would I, why would I do that? Right. And then Clipper came along and said, here, buy it. For for one ninety nine, hmm. and you know two hundred dollars, and give us my you know compile as many apps as you want. So we we bought Clipper. Yep. And uh, and yeah, Clipper was very very good to me. 
Yeah, a lot of people made a lot of money with Clipper. Yeah, and then and and I resisted Windows for so long. (laughs) (laughs) I called them wimpy mouse users. (laughs) You know, the Mac came out in an '84. Well, really, when Windows, even like Windows One and Two, came out, there wasn't a lot of apps for it, and you could play Solitaire, do anything important. Yeah, there was a shell for the OS, but there was a text shell that was faster and. The two things that tipped me over to Windows, there were two things. The first was when I got a copy of Ashton Tate's framework. Oh, no, no. It was Lotus Symphony. Remember Lotus Symphony? Yeah. What was that? Was and that, that was, a word that processor was like an office something? suite. It was yeah. word processing. It had one, two, three in it and a presentation program and so forth. But what made me crazy about it was the program came on five, five and a quarter floppies. Yeah. And then there were 40 driver disks. Yeah, right. I remember the driver For each disk. printer, for each mouse, because we're starting to use mice back then, yep. the different memory options. Mm. It was just incredibly frustrating to operate that. So the whole idea that Windows got rid of driver disks, and we forget this. I but know, that it's was true. what Windows did. We, take, got it, rid of we driver take it so for granted that Windows just works with the hardware. But the other thing that absolutely, I said, okay, now I'm going to learn Windows, and that was version Windows 3, yep. was WinFax. Remember oh, yeah. WinFax? I do remember WinFax. The big thing about WinFax was faxing as a printer. So it didn't matter what program I used. Right. If it could print in Windows, I could fax with it. Yes, they discovered that, the device context. It was magic. Yep. So I'm like, okay, now I'm going to learn how to use this. Now it's worth it. Also, I remember when Windows 3, was it 3.0 that came out and, and they had dra- the drag and drop file uh, file system, you know, the Explorer. That was revolutionary. Absolutely. That was 3.0. So, yeah. I guess now I'm a little jumping a little bit ahead, but my business career, I was already working on, I mean, I was working at 12, right? So all through high school and stuff, I always had a computer related job. I've literally never done anything except work on computers my entire life. Yeah. And so I was selling, I was doing contract development work and so forth through high school. When I finally graduated, I I fell in with a partner. Well, how were your grades in high school? Lousy. Yeah. Because I was barely there. Yeah. Right. I, I was programming at night <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> so, you know, I, I managed to graduate, but barely. Yeah. Same uh, here, actually. That, you know, and, and I was pretty well read and and quite technical, interested in a lot of things, and, and most of them didn't involve school. So, right. you know, I stuck around with machines. But the, really, the break for me was as I came out of high school, I fell in with a partner who was much older than I was. He was in his 60s. Jewish, for that matter, hmm. and uh, and he recognized me as a you know a talented guy, and uh, he's dead now, and he wa- and so basically said like and I, you knew I knew nothing about business, so we we formed this partnership where he operated the business and and I uh, I did the the work whether it was building machines because I came from a hardware background or writing the software whatever needed to be done I did smart, uh, but the biggest thing that he did for me was teach me business yeah. So, you know, from the age of 17 on, I had this constant indoctrination in business, and we remained partners for about five years. Huh. Uh, it en- that ended in 1989. It ended very badly. It ended the way mo- you know, a lot of partners end, which is we finally came up with an idea that was going to make some serious money. Mm. And as soon as the money starts coming in, in trouble. Yeah. The idea was uh, school truancy. Something so, that you probably knew a lot about. I knew a lot about it. I was a very <laughs> truant child. And I'd run across this board, and it sent and received touch tones and sent and received digital audio. Oh, wow. That's all it did, right? And it was a full-length ISA board for the IBM PC. Fun. It's like 1987. Yeah, fun stuff. So, and I'm consulting downtown and building a lot of machines and that that sort of stuff. So, we start working on this board. And uh, so, the the idea was if we tie it into the school systems, it will phone home if a kid misses class. (laughs) 
and it you know it took a few months to get it together, but it worked and it was reliable. And our you know the toughest part of the the product was actually excluding kids that had missed class. How ironic is that? That like the the chief truant child at school comes up with a solution for truancy at the school. Oh, and, and so classic. I sold it into the district that I went to <laughs> in, at school, right? And I'm standing in front of these teachers who taught me, yeah, right? And one of them who hadn't said, excuse me, you went to, in, to school right. in Burnaby. Yes, I did. He says, I, weren't you a notorious skipper of classes? <laughs> well, yes, I was. He goes, so this is where this comes from? He says, well, you know, it takes one to know one. <laughs> Anyway, you know, as soon as we started making real money, uh, then the relationships, the relationship broke down and it was a, it was a messy process. That's too bad. Uh, yeah, it's unfortunate. And the product ultimately died from that. Huh. Uh, and j- during the time I had some great consulting work, I- I'll tell you a tale. Okay. And I may have told this to you before, but I don't think anybody else has heard it. So I'm consulting downtown. This is before the, the, the phone dialer product and so forth. But in that same era, uh, most of my customers were down in Vancouver and, uh, and that's where I lived. And so I, you know, walked to, to work most of the time and uh, work with different folks. And I get this call from a competitor, a fellow consultant woman who says, you know, I understand you're the guy who can crack the really tough problems. And of course, I have a hardware background. So often I can deal with really, you know, bizarre things. He goes, yeah, yeah, that's me. I can, I crack tough ones. He says, well, I got this one I can't figure out. And I wonder if you would take a look at it for me. I'm like, ah, sure. Why not? And it was for a brokerage house, which is, you know, big deal. Mm, brokerage yeah. house. So I go in there and they've got this one computer that connects to the stock exchanges and it's using a synchronous modem and uh, serial and then it's using network connections. This was like ArcNet yeah. to connect all these machines together and the machine keeps hanging huh. every every few hours it will hang, which means nobody's getting their stock quotes. Right. And it's a big deal and you got to restart it and so forth and so on. So I listed the whole great long story of all the problems and all the things they've tried, try to fix it, da, 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 da. And I think for a while, and I go, you know what? I know I can fix your problem. Really? What is it? He says, well, you know, I'll do it for you, but it's going to cost you $3,000. Wow. Which at the time, ton of money. Yeah. And she looks at me like, like I'm gouging. Right. Right? $3,000. Are you crazy? I'm like, you know, I think it's cost you a lot more money than that. It's a very fair price. You let me know if you want me to do it. And right. I leave. Wow. Walk away. Two weeks, and I figure, she, and she never calls, right? Two weeks later, she calls back and says, I got to check for three grand if you can fix it today. Wow. And like, no problem, I can fix it. What did I do? I bought a new computer. No. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Of course. There's a, a $1,500 machine sitting there screwing up the whole business. That's so funny. I just bought another. I showed up with a new machine. I transferred the software over. I moved the specialty cards over. I configured everything, got it up and running. I picked up the other machine to walk out with it in my check. And she goes, so what was wrong? This beats the hell out of me. Why do I care? It's fixed. <laughs> that's so awesome no you never told me that story hey this is carl i just want to take a minute out of the show to tell you about telerix q2 2000 tools update which can be summed up this way blazing fast performance for asp.net wpf like visual effects for windows forms and codeless reporting the Ajax-based content editor is now 76% faster and much more intuitive. The grid also received a performance boost, plus PDF export, frozen columns, and they've even added a new awesome scheduling component. 
What I find even more intriguing is Telerik's Windows Form Suite. It's unbelievable that it offers WPF-like visual effects like scaling, rotation, object motion, transparencies, and so on without WPF. As a result, you could have grids, tree views, ribbons, and more with a previously impossible level of interactivity and appeal. Telerik has recently added cab support, which makes the component set a perfect fit for large enterprise applications. Lastly, with Telerik reporting, you can create advanced business reports in Windows, Web, or PDF format using pretty much design time only. Wizards, expression builders, and converters help you with the design, styling, and integration. You'll also be amazed to see some unique features, like CSS-like styling and conditional formatting. See what all the fuss is about. Download a trial at Telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for sponsoring .NET Rocks. Oh, man. It's just, you know, <laughs> people don't just, think. They're not thinking, like, right. This is common sense issue. Like, holy cow. Right. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> anyway, Too you know, funny. that business wrapped up in the, in like 1989. And, and, and so then, uh, then, but by then Windows was starting to take a hold and I got focused on Windows, but it took a couple of years to go back out on my own again. So, you know, I was consulting on my own from about 85 to, to 89. And then I started running through different businesses working for various folks along the way and, and learning more about larger organizations and, and yeah. that whole experience and getting up to speed on Windows and and, and turned into an IT guy largely. Right. I still did development, but I, I managed other developers and managed IT folks. And, and you really got into you really got into SQL syntax with access and then SQL server after that. And that's sort of been your area of expertise. Well the, that was the biggest trouble we had with with machines more than anything was right. just getting data out effectively so i got involved with sql you know because i have my dbase background access was a triviality yeah. and that led to sql server almost immediately so and i and and again i come from i did a lot of netware back then too right. so uh switching over to dedicated servers just wasn't a big deal yeah. and and so you know i liked nt3 i liked the command line version of nt yeah it was familiar and comfortable mm. And uh, and SQL 4.2 was amazing, very capable, and so got deeply immersed in all of that. But I really, you know, getting married and making babies is what I was very content as an IT guy yeah. and and doing that job until I'd made my had had my kids. I was married and I had a house and I had children. I'm like, well, now what? Yeah. So that's when you decide to build the server closet, right? Well, this is before, even before any of that, you know, the younger one's just been born. I'm trying to figure out what to, you know, what are you supposed to do now right. as a as a man in the Western world once you've made your children? Right. All there is left is to provide for your family. Yeah. And I've had this very distinctive thought as I'm sitting in my bunker at the office, you know, looking around at everything humming perfectly. And I thought, wow, you know what? I can do better than this. <laughs> and so I started writing on the side. Uh, and I, I wrote about uh, Windows programming. I wrote for uh, the Pinnacle Publications and, yeah. and uh, wrote about reporting technologies a lot. Uh, and, you know, by then I'd learned enough about business that I was really good at figuring out where the business made money. Yeah. It made me very successful as an IT guy was where is where is the business making money? Make sure that what you do facilitates that. I don't make the money. I help other people make the money. But if I don't actually make that work, then what's my point? Why do I exist? That goes back to your partnership with the guy who is the money wizard. Way back, way back, you know, I, I owe him a lot, yeah. but 
you know, the, that mindset of follow the money. Where is this company making money? If you make it make more money, they will give you some. So many people don't know this about you, but um, one of the things that you're known for is just being a bulldog when you go into a consulting gig and uh, people hire you to find the problem. And typically that comes down to a individual or uh, you know, or or a breakdown and breakdown in communication, or something like that. Yeah. And you and you, you do a really good job of that. It's it's all about tracing down what the actual issues are. Well, and and keeping your head up, right? Just like that story about the brokerage house. Yeah. Keep your head up. What's the important part here? What are we actually trying to achieve? Right. Uh, and I think that's you know the fact that computing comes from a hobbyist mindset where we're really just trying to understand how stuff works right. and so forth. We often lose sight of the actual goal of the business, which was get things done. You know, this comes back to something we talk about again and again and again, which is your people's egos get in the way of their thought processes. You know what yeah, I'm this- saying? So, I mean, as a programmer, you're a better programmer if you can put your ego aside and just concentrate on the problem. And don't worry about whether you did it or he did it or she did it or whatever. You know what I mean? I got hired one time by a by a, a corporation to help hire developers, and uh, they said, "What do you look for in a senior developer?" And I, I say, "I look for the one the one thing I find in a senior developer more than anything else is that they know what they don't know." Yeah, they will ask questions and they will say, "I don't understand this. Keep explaining it to me until I do understand." Right. Junior developers know everything. Right. They want to. Th- they want you to think they know everything. But there's there's a humility to somebody who's had real experience. Right. That, you know what? I've had my ass kicked yep. by technology over and over again. It just, it happens. And making any of those assumptions, you know, all those classic, I forgot to check to see if it was plugged in. Right. You know, and you do all these crazy things. The number of times when I finally come into on a problem and realize everything you've done for the past week before you called me made this worse. Mm. The original problem is minor. Cleaning up your mess is hard. Mm. Uh it's just, you know, people get too invested in the problem. All right. So tell us about the racehorse thing. <laughs> so I was between jobs, which happens sometimes, you know, I was moving from company to company. And I realized in hindsight that it was really a recovery process from my business breakup in 1989 yeah. before I went back out on my own again in 1995. But in in that span... I went through a lot of different companies. So I was between companies at a time. And a friend of mine who was uh, a great, a serious gambler, uh, serious in the sense that he was one of these few people that actually could make money gambling, took me horse racing one time when I had nothing to do. And we talked about this whole, he gave me a book on it. And I was looking at this technique called speed figuring, which was what this book was about, which was really about calculating how the horse runs the race, where he's fastest, where he slows down, so forth and so on. And uh, once you understood how the speed figures worked, you realized that horses that ran certain speed figure styles would tend to win certain races. So there was consistency to, consistency to it. And I came back with them and said, you know, I could make a program that did what this book says because it takes quite a time to figure all this stuff out. So we wrote up the software and spent a summer betting horses for profit. Huh. And so it, the funny, the sad part of horse is that anybody who makes a living gambling doesn't actually want to work. Right. But it's and an awful lot of work. It's an awful lot of work yeah. to actually load all the figures into the computer and, and calculate out, you know, get the program running and, and get the results. But every day that there was racing, we'd be 
getting the racing form, plugging in who the horses were for each race, basing their their histories for to compute the the speed figures, and then figure out who was likely to win the race. And we were right about forty percent of the time. That's good enough, which was enough to win some fairly significant races. So you'd go in betting a, with about a thousand dollar pool to bet with. And if you did your job right, you came up with fifteen hundred or two thousand dollars. And so when you could do that day after day, you did pretty well. But it was hard work. Yeah, and it didn't always work out. Some days you got cleaned. Right. So it was, you know, it was an industry challenge. And after a couple of months of that, I'm like, okay, I don't want to actually make a living this way. <laughs> but uh, it was an interesting experience just to understand. You know, I I know entirely entirely too much. Well, it's about it's, gambling. It speaks to your skill of being able to take real world things and translate them into technology i mean you, you know you're very good at sort of uh that abstract thought process and getting it's it all about just distilling the problem down as a consultant you know as we came into the dot-com boom you know 97 98 as i went back because i'd gone back out of my own in 95 initially as a writer and then got into to more consulting work again and, and got back to that self-employed role uh the dot-com boom was all you know i was famous for don't show me a computer. On Monday, no computers allowed. If you can't explain this on a whiteboard, the computer isn't going to help you. And, and they look at me like it was baffled and says, look, computers are amplifiers. Yeah. They can amplify your intelligence or they can amplify your stupidity. Which would you like? Right. Until we can actually clearly delineate what it is we're trying to achieve here on a whiteboard, computers just aren't going to help us. And nine times out of ten, going through that exercise answered a lot of problems we got back to what was important yeah and then it was not that hard to fix the software because you could always look back at the board and say but we decided this now we know what to do with the software yeah so the, the dot-com boom was a ton of fun because i did i did a lot of consulting but again and you know my tendency is to follow the money so it didn't take me very long before i was working for the venture capitalists because they had all the money and uh, and they found me useful because I was a guy who was technical but understood where the money goes and what you know I was actually concerned about these companies making a profit which a lot of folks thought was back then was crazy talk <laughs> you know it was about grabbing market share and so forth right. they, they, you know great okay you've got a million people you can lose money on excellent yep so uh the and the venture capitalists uh, I worked with a few different organizations which we'll leave nameless for now but they would have me help evaluate a company or help them firefight through a problem or once in a while we'd do the bulldog role which is what's broken in this team go find it and fix it yeah uh, if that meant somebody had to leave then that's fine sometimes it meant training sometimes it meant more money so let's fast forward a little bit to the days of vb and net and sql server and and the kind of things that you would do when you were just working at home for yourself well, let me, yeah, but even before I went back out consulting, my last few real jobs were, were VB, uh, against SQL Server type development jobs, uh, you know, and surviving. Remember great VB4 debacle trying to get to 32 bit? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Tough times. You know, what do we rewrite? What don't we rewrite? The demise of the VBX. I was on a panel discussion at a VBITS once when the OCX was coming out in 32-bit versus 16-bit, and now all the VB component vendors had to do tech support for C++ programmers and C, you know, not C yeah. Sharp, C++. And, uh, you know, they asked me, so what are you going to do about tech support? And I said, well, we're just going to provide tech support. We're going to do the best we can. We, you know, we have a common language, which is Olay. 
And, uh, you know, and people were like, oh, my God, you know, how can we possibly do that? But it was so really, many vendors failed. They disappeared. It was a really hard transition for a lot of vendors. It definitely shook out the industry, and it wasn't the only shakeout. You know, eventually the OCX went away and ActiveX came along. So, you know, there, there was a few times when that happened. But, you know, through that whole era, I, I got into the UI side. I, I, I lived and breathed Alan Cooper, yep. helping people represent information effectively. So that was a very data centric and, and, and those sorts of systems. I fell into OLAP right at the beginning, the Ralph Kimball eras. And, uh, when I, my writing career started taking off on the side, I started writing about this whole concept of, of data warehousing and data analysis. And that became big. It was a big deal. Uh, and so I started getting con, what sent me back out on my own was I got con, part time contract offers worth more than my salary. Wow. I'm like, gee, what am I doing? Right. <laughs> I got to go work for myself again. Yep. And off I went. And I've been out ever since. So that was 1995. I never had a real job since then, really. Wow. But uh, I was, I've was i always been a guy who kept many irons in the fire. I always had some writing right. and some training and some consulting. I liked a diversity of income. All right. Let's talk about your server closet now because this is what's fascinating to me. So in the during the dot-com boom, I started helping people build data centers. Because again, I had that hardware background and and tuning fairly large scale apps. So I did a lot of work around data centers and scaling them out and so forth. And uh, I spent a ton of time at Microsoft Labs, the ones that are in like Palo Alto and in Austin and in Chicago and so forth, working with companies. They would bring me in as a consultant and they'd also have the Microsoft people there. And I was just a good foil against the Microsoft folks. Right. Uh, because I, you know, you, you can't, bullshit me right so when they're sort of talking around in circles i'm like okay you guys don't actually know the answer to this problem <laughs> you're full of crap yeah. <laughs> aren't you <laughs> i'm a little too technical for you to pull that one on me and so a uh, you know it became very interesting uh, balance but i also realized i was going to the same place over and over again like why yeah. do i keep going here yeah. and when we bought the, the house in 2000 and i had enough room I said, well, I'm going to build my own rack system in the house. And I explained to the wife, this is what I want to do. And I said the only thing that mattered to her, which is I'll stay home more. Right. And so she was okay with that. And and how did, that, I, how did that work out for you, like relationship-wise? I had a real problem working at home in that I couldn't turn it off. And I was always, you know, upstairs, downstairs, upstairs, downstairs, all day long, all evening long. I, I, I wasn't very good at saying, okay, now I'm at work. Now I'm home. Did you have that problem? Absolutely, I have that problem. Uh, two things work for me. One is I do get to stop once in a while I can do that. But the second was I have uh, an entrepreneurial wife. Yeah. So she had her own business too. So we could obsess together. Well, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, good and bad. So it actually worked quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, but it, it didn't become as big an issue. And I, I think we're both pretty independently minded people. So we've both done a fair bit of single parenting. She travels for her work. I travel for mine and so forth. And, and of course, her, the reality is she has a background in engineering as well. So, you know, yeah. I figure she's an industrial engineer. I'm a programmer. When we argue, it involves a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't think she knows much about computers, but the reality is she hangs around with folks like me right. and you, which means to regular mortals, she knows a ton. Yeah. 
It's just that, you know, her normal exposure every day is people dealing with the weird intricacies. Yeah. But as soon as I had the room, I built up my own rack system. So I stopped traveling so much and I could just have people send their gear to me and I would configure it and test it and so forth and then ship it out again. You were running IT departments of companies all over the world from your office down there. Well, that was the side effect was bit by, you know, as the Internet really took hold and we could get further afield. It became very easy, plus I quickly priced myself in such a way as it was very expensive to get me to your office, and not so expensive if I could come in local, remotely. Right. And so as soon as we could figure out, I would do the first few meetings in person, and I'd gotten into this routine now where I was, I had a standard repertoire of companies, many of them outside of North America, yeah. that I would visit once a quarter for a week. Yeah. And we'd plan what the next quarter was going to look like, what work was going to get done and so forth. And then I'd go away and we'd communicate remotely. And then I'd come back the following quarter. And, and that got into a really, it was a, they all kept me on retainer. Uh, they called me an insurance policy. Yeah. That whenever things went badly, I would get things fixed. And, and so they were very comfortable with that. And, and it was a great way for me to live. That's and a very so nice job to have. It was a, it was a good routine. Yeah. And then the dot com bubble burst. Right. And things got tougher. And th- is that when you became an RD? It was shortly after that, right? I became an RD in, our, in 2004. But, you know, the whole speaking, writing uh, was a whole other channel. You know, not, it was 97 when I really started publishing a lot. Yeah. And then I want – everybody wants to be a speaker. Right. You know, it's it's easy when, if you start writing to think, oh, I want to get in front of an audience. And I was pretty good in front of audiences even back then. But uh, trying to get into the speaking circuit was incredibly challenging. And I did a few local things and I got into dev days. I, my first exposure to the RD program was was dev days. Right. Well, that was the job of RDs back then. That was the original job of RDs was to run dev days in those local offices before Microsoft had offices. Then. Right. And so I, I was writing for a, a particular magazine group. And uh, and, I, and they had their own conference. And I said, well, how can I get to speak at the conference? And they said, well, just write more for the magazine and we'll, we'll fit you in. Yeah. So utilizing my obsessive compulsive nature for this powers of good, <laughs> I said, I'm going to be the most, you know, frequent writer they could be. And I wrote right. 60 articles for them in a year. Oh, my God. I mean, I just cranked them out and I didn't get an invitation to the conference. Oh. And so I wrote this email where I was like, what does it take? Right. I've written so many articles now for you. You guys are trying to stop me. Right. I know you 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 can't publish three articles in an issue from me. So you know we're we were already over the top. But what do I got to do? And they contacted me back and apologized and said, well, you know, we noticed that you get all those articles in on time, and all the editors love working with you. Well, would you organize conferences for us? Wow. And I'm like, well, you know what? I've never organized a conference. What do I know? <laughs> and I think, well, believe me, you can do this. Okay. And, and now I'm a technical editor, so I'm, I'm used to planning technical content anyway. So I realized I did have the skills. I didn't realize in hindsight anyway. I had the skills to plan conferences. So I started working on planning conferences. And that is as much about herding the cats that are the speakers as it yeah. is about planning out content and thinking in that, what are people going to care about six months from now? Right. Uh, right. To, to great do content planning. I did that for a number of years. Mm. And it really, you know, it's funny in hindsight, again, it's totally set the stage for working with you. <laughs> yeah, I know it. <laughs> We've know? had parallel lives in many ways, but I mean, I was never an electronics whiz like you were. I was playing in a band when I was 12. Yeah, you know? well, and I can't play a musical instrument to save my life. I got, yeah, I got into computers late. I got in at the TRS-80 Model 4, and that was like high school. And then the, the PC clone was my first computer, and I got into Quick Basic from there. So I had to learn all this stuff from the top down, whereas you learned it from the bottom up, more or and, less. And, you know, the... I've since day one, I've always built my own gear. I still do. 
Yeah. Uh, and that helped me a lot in the data center work. It helped me a lot in, in just understanding how machines work. It really is, makes it useful for diagnosing problems, especially when you get into large scale systems, like just being able to, the big thing about building data centers from scratch and building up web systems from scratch is I don't forget about DNS. Yeah. I don't forget about network rules. I don't right. forget about proper masking. Like yeah. being involved in all of that, being aware of the stuff in front of the web server yep. helps so much when it you does. get into the scaling issues. You have so many more tools available to you. Well, just conscious of where those problems might lie. So then we were at the, we met, I think, at the regional director booth at PDC 2004. I think. Uh, it was DevTeach. Oh, the first time I met you was at DevTeach. Yeah. We didn't really meet all that much. And then, no, no, you know what? We'd met before that. We yeah, met we met at, at PDC. We met at the RD booth, the PDC. That was TechEd. Or TechEd, one of those. I remember yeah. it was a booth. And uh, you were just hanging around and talking to people, and you know, we met. And uh, then, then it was the speaker's uh, dinner at DevTeach. And you know, like you are, you're like, the loudest guy on the, at the table <laughs> with your stories and talking about water cool PCs. I'm like, you would be a great guest on my show. So that's how we met. But, um, you know, the funny part is we actually talked before that. I don't know. You probably don't remember this. It was by but, email, right? Uh, yeah. Cause Stevie Forte for who is a friend of mine from, from way back for more than 10 years now, we met at the, at the beginning of the speaking circuit in like 1997. Yeah. Um, forwarded me an email of yours uh from the uh, from the alias at, about reporting yeah and uh, and i answered it in detail and he, and i guess he passed it back to you and i already knew who you were because you're hey you're carl franklin yeah i had right? a, a reputation from carl and gary's back then yeah so I'm, 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 when i was an early vb guy i was on carl and gary's i was writing for magazines and long stuff, time too. ago long time ago but yeah, it was 2004 when we met and and I, i'm a big believer in there are certain there's certain times where we're like, oh, obviously we were meant to be friends. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's it the way was it was. Pretty effortless. It was like, <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> this is how it's going to be. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yep, exactly. And uh, well, now that we've got to this point, you have to tell the geekiest story ever told. Oh no, you want the Goliath story? I want the Goliath story, dude. This is. For the listeners who have never heard the story of Goliath, you are in for a treat. I mean, anytime we go to a speaker dinner uh, or an RD function and there's a bunch of people who've never heard the story, Richard gets everybody's attention in the room and tells this story, and it's like the highlight of the night. Mostly just by being loud. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just recently where where somebody said, I I want you to tell that story, but I'll get everybody's attention. I said, don't worry, I'll get everybody's attention. (laughs) Yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. It'll be okay. It'll be fine. Uh, so now that you've sort of heard my history, that sort of span of time, yeah, jump to 1985. So okay. I've already been a computer geek for a number of years. That was the but, year you graduated high school. Uh, 84, I graduated high school. Okay. Yeah. Same that around that time frame. So I'm what 17 and I've been programming for a while and, uh, I'm a modemer. Back then, 300 yep. and 1200 Bob modems. BBS uh, systems. I owned a, a, I owned an acoustic coupler that I used my rotary <laughs> dial phone with and all that good stuff. My, I think the first machine I had connected to a modem was a Deck Rider 3, wow. which actually printed on ledger paper. So you got to use the paper four times because you used both sides on both ends because <laughs> paper is expensive. But that's how that stuff worked. Uh, and there was at that time, there was only three BBSs in all of Vancouver. Uh, and one of them was a BBS called uh, Twilight Zone run by a friend of mine. 
Now, this friend of yours was brilliant also. Oh, man. Stevie's, this is another Steve. Way better electronics guy than I am. I mean, unbelievable. This is a guy who would build his own computers from scratch. Just for fun. Just for something to do. He yeah. was incredibly talented and still is to this day. I mean, remarkably talented guy. Hmm. And he phones. And when I tell a story, he wrote a crowd. I'm like, and he didn't ask me where I was because, hey, it's 1985. Nobody has a cell phone. No cell phone. I'm at home. <laughs> where are you? <laughs> uh, and I was, at that time I was living downtown. I was already being a consultant. And he said, uh, can you come over to, can get a couple of friends and come over to the IBM building? I need some help. I'm like, okay. And he'd been doing work there. I think he'd been pulling cable. And he'd spied this hard drive in a corner of a room. Now, now hard drive is yes, hardly now, the word. This was a 1972 hard drive made by Hewlett Packard. I believe it was called a Model 750. And it was 20 megabytes. And it was the size of a washing machine. I've weighed several hundred pounds. Wow. And it, and I and I realize now, because we've been talking about these sort of stories for a while, this was of an era where this was a very normal statement. Right. He said, what are you doing with that? And they said, if you can get it out of here, you can have it. They just yeah. wanted it, they wanted it gone because yeah. they're so big and so heavy. So I got all the service manuals for it, got the machine itself. We all worked together. We loaded up in the back of his 1969 Grand Torino, this great big. <laughs> tank of a car we called titanic we even had boat bumpers for it <laughs> and it doesn't fit in the trunk trying it's sort of hanging half out of the trunk we drive it back he lives with his parents right we drive back to his parents place how old is in the he attic. how old is he 16 17 so he's about your age yeah we're all about the same age all pretty serious geeks and all you know already working in the technology industry haul it upstairs now a few things we learn about a hard drive this heavy first is you have to position it very carefully in the attic because it'll crack the walls downstairs. Oh, got to put it over a beam. That's right. Found that out the hard way. Cracked the walls downstairs. <laughs> Next problem I've was learned. it ran on 220 volts. Oh, All right. right. It needed like a dryer circuit. Like and there's dryer. no dryer circuits in yeah. the attic. Yeah. So S Steve builds his own power supply. Builds, brings two different 15-amp regular 120-volt circuits together. Builds the power supply for this thing himself. Wow. And then... Now he's got to somehow interface this archaic drive to his Apple II. So essentially builds his own set of controllers. I think it was basically another Apple II he built, whose sole purpose was to control this drive hmm. and then communicate serially to Twilight Zone. Hmm. And it took a while to get that up and running, but it was very impressive. Next thing we discovered when he got it up and running was that it consumed about $200 a month in electricity. <laughs> And we found this out the hard way, too, when Dad showed up with the electricity bill going, I don't know what you boys are doing up here, <laughs> but stop it. <laughs> you know, nobody, you know, today that would be a grow up. It would be like a thousand bucks, right? Oh, it's yeah, the insane amount of money for electricity. So what he did was he set it up so that you had to, when you logged onto the board, you press G, G for Goliath a hard drive, and yeah. it would start it up. Right. So then it would only run when you were going to use it. And remember, this is a 20 megabyte hard drive in an era where we have five and a quarter inch, 160K floppy. Now, you said that he wrote the bulletin board software too, right? Oh, and he wrote it himself. But then again, this is that era. Right. Middle 80s, that's what you did. Right. And in fact, in Vancouver, there were three or four different groups of guys who wrote their own BBS software back then. And, and I, I was friends with many of them. Interestingly, that was one of my first... Real software projects was a BBS. Right in a BBS. I loved it. That was the thing that propelled me forward. And it just that it's amazing how much we wanted the internet even then. Yep. Yep. So 
Now, for a few years, things are really good. We are loading. We are the greatest pirates in the world. We're <laughs> grabbing every piece of software we can find, and we're loading it onto Goliath. <laughs> and every time you hit G, the first time I was actually there when it happened, it scared my, the wits out of me, because this thing is big. And when you hit G, it starts, and it shakes the walls. So like, <laughs> and the walls are shaking, and dust is falling, and it spins up. It was an 1800 RPM drive. Oh, wow. Right? Smoking fast. When it come up to speed, and it would sort of get into balance. It'd go, hum. And then the heads would release, and it'd start chunking back and forth. And I'd look at Steve like, dude, you sleep in this room? Yeah, really. Oh, my God. Really loud. Well, I felt bad. I, now I didn't want to use Goliath at night because it was so loud. Huh. So <laughs> a few years go by. It's like 1988 or so. Steve phones me. He says, you better get over here right away. And I hop on my motorcycle and I drive over and I walk up into the attic and I take a deep breath. Like, and I smell this smell. And it's a it's it's a bad smell. It's the smell of electronic death. It's that sort of resinous, smoky, something's burned. Yeah. And I'm like, what's happened? He goes, well, look. And the cover's off the front of Goliath, and there are blast marks in the cover. Oh, man. So remember that power supply he'd built those few years before? Yeah. This lamp, which we would later name David, <laughs> fell over on the power supply and shorted 120 volts AC into the 5-volt ground. And it Oops. just wreaked havoc with the drive. There was these all these different controller boards. And I think there was 22 different boards that were inside this machine. And they uh, were all in some form of damage. They had holes burnt through them. Chips blown off. Not just good. destroyed. It was carnage. And I look at Steve. I'm like, well, what do you want to do? He says, I think we can fix it. Hmm. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, how are we going to fix this? And he says, <laughs> I got all the manuals. <laughs> I know how to test everything. Oh, those crazy kids and they're fixing fix their hard now, drives. Remember, this This thing's from 1972. <laughs> and so, I mean, the stuff in it is really old. I mean, today we use, you know, the stuff that's in our computers today, they call MOSFET. Yeah. Right? That's the, the type of electronics that they use. And before MOSFET, there was CMOS. And before CMOS, there were TTL. And TTL was pretty common in the, in the, in the 80s when this was going on. There was, CMOS was new and innovative and, and TTL was the standard. Mm. But, before TTL, in the 70s, it was called DTL, or Diode Transistor Logic. That's the chips that were in this thing, hmm. and you couldn't even buy them. Hmm. So I'm like, how are we going to get these parts? Like, what are you thinking? And he says, I know, I have a source. Turns out his source was arcade repair centers. The <laughs> old arcade video game machines have these circuit boards in that all have DTL on them. Yeah. And so for months... We're going out with a clipboard, and a guy would dumpster dive, and we'd be reading off part numbers on these these boards that they were tossing out. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, how how many arcade repair shops are there in Vancouver? Well, at that time, there were quite a few. Really? Because I, mean, I guess because so, arcades were pretty prevalent. Back but then. yeah, in the middle eighties, there was lots of arcades. I mean, we hung out in arcades most of the time. I remember. Yeah, Battle you know, Zone, man. I this love was Battle the hip zone. thing to do, right? Be really, be before this is that's know, right. Just before the Nintendo That's and right. the television is, and all that good stuff. This was our electronic going. fix back then. Yeah, that was your hit, and that's where you went. So it takes months to round up all these parts. We're, you know, we're reading off these numbers, and we keep these boards, and we take them back to Steve's place, and we take them off the board, clean them up, test them, and then eventually we get all the parts together, and he rebuilds all the boards himself. He did all this work. Yeah. Unbelievable amount of work. Everything tests out perfect. Hmm. And people are missing their data, right? I mean, they want to get the data back. It's been down for months. Right. So finally, he p 
puts everything back together. It looks like it's worked. He powers, he's ready to power it up. And so he goes, he logs into TZ directly, hits G, and the machine does this thing. Boom, wham, spins up to speed. <laughs> Huge noise. Heads release. <laughs> And the heads stroke across the whole length of the disc, and they slam into the backstop on the other end, and the heads snap off their arms and start pinging around inside the case, taking divots out of the disc. Oh. Right? It's oh. carnage. And he pull the plug on the machine, it spins back down. You don't recover from that. And I'm, I'm looking at it, and I go, dude, head crash. Big time. Yeah. Now what do you want to do? And he goes, now we got it. Platter damage. There's Tear it apart. Do. Now it's a one-way trip. We're done. The data is not coming back. <laughs> So now he takes, the first thing that comes out is the actual platter chassis itself, which is huge. It's like 20 inches across, Mm. eight discs in this thing. Mm. Takes it apart. We call them the world's most dangerous Frisbees. You can throw them, (laughs) just don't catch them. And I go, I'm on the phone while he's doing this, calling everybody, let them know they're not getting their data back. Like, that's it. And it's turning into a wake because people are telling me, you know, they're reminiscing of the good old days of Goliath. Yeah. And it goes on for hours. We'll in oh, call man. after the next. There's a lot of people involved here. And Steve just keeps digging away. More and more parts are coming out of the chassis. He's ripping it apart. And all of a sudden, he exclaims. And I look up, and, he, and he's in the chassis. His butt's in the air. Feet are off the ground. He's in the box. Yeah. I'm like, well, what's going on? And he comes up out of the box, and he's got this thing. Now, remember slot cars? Yeah, You remember sure. the little AFX slot cars? And they had those little motors in them that had the two solid curved magnets that went around the little rotor? Yep. So imagine a magnet just like that, only it's about 70 pounds. It's enormous. Wow. And as he comes out of the case with this thing, he drops it, <laughs> and it shatters. And pieces of magnet go sailing all over the room, sticking to everything that's metal. <laughs> It's everywhere. I mean, literally for years, he's finding chunks of magnet because they're in the heating vents. It's stuck to the underside of his bed frame. Oh. It's everywhere. Big chunks and little chunks. And I have no way. I'm sitting on the other side of the room. I'm like, what the hell was that? He goes, it's the biggest magnet I've ever seen. And there's another one. So now we both go in and we pull this enormous magnet out. And as we yank it out, we step too close to Twilight Zone. And the monitor goes, bang. Ow. And it bends the display so that the screen is now a quarter of an inch wide <laughs> and it's never getting any bigger ever again. Oops. All right. Now, okay. Did you guys he, know what magnets did to CRT? Oh, sure. He, you know, if you actually have a CRT, take a magnet tip screwdriver and swirl yeah. it in front of the screen. An it won't do any damage. It's very cool to look at. We've all done that. It just hadn't occurred to us, you know, that this magnet was that powerful. I had that experience with my with my first color TV that my parents had that they got us. And I can't remember what it was, what, what was magnetic that I put in front of it. But, you know, back in those days we had, you know, we would like to sit around and entertain ourselves visually, whatever that means. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was kind of cool. Hey, check this out. And you just like move the magnet around and parts of the screen turn green and red and then they stay that way. Yeah. If the magnet's strong <laughs> enough, you will bend stuff up. Then you so you imagine this big magnet just bent it. Our parents are like, what the hell's wrong with the TV? Yeah, yeah, we're gonna we call the para guy here. So now he wants what are we gonna do with this magnet? Let's take it over to Bob's place. Okay, so we go running downstairs with this big magnet and we come out to the car and it grabs the side of the car. <laughs> and it's stuck to the side. It's Titanic, and the Titanic is made of steel, and we can't get the magnet off. Not for anything. I mean, it is stuck to the side of the car. And Steve just wants to drive with it like that. I'm like, great, we can like collect Honda Civics as we go by. <laughs> right? This magnet's so powerful. 
So we eventually get a scissor jack and slide it between the magnet and the car because it's stuck on the curved side out, right? The two ends. That's why you can't get it off. And if you try and move it, it actually rips the paint off the car. Slide this scissor jack in, crank the jack up, dent the car, Ugh. pop the magnet off the car. <laughs> so now I wrap the magnet in a towel yeah. so that it won't, if it grabs something, we can at least slide it off. Right. And we go over to Bob's place. Poor Bob. Well, we come running into his bedroom with this thing and get too close to his 2GS and bang, bang. kill another screen. <laughs> hey, Bob, check this out. And he's, what have you done? <laughs> like, Sorry, dude. <laughs> And his thought is, we got to go to an arcade with this thing. <laughs> we can yeah. wreak some serious havoc. <laughs> so now we're trying to figure out what to do with this magnet. Yeah. Did you actually go to arcades and ruin things? We did not. Ah. Eventually, I mean, we had a portable electronic mag- uh, electromagnetic pulse. You it knew was just a- you'd be in such trouble if you did that. It's I mean. vandalism. Yeah. It was just too dangerous to keep around. We eventually right. stashed it in the basement of Steve's house. Yeah. And... Forgot about it because, you know, we have short attention spans. Right. And one day they all moved out of that house. So something tells me that magnet is still down there. I tell you, you know, the reason that um, I brought that story up is because you told it a long time ago on Mondays because one of the one of your your job on Mondays, of course, is to find toys. He's Richard the Toy Boy and he finds weird things on the Internet, good toys and bad toys. And there was this company that was selling some sort of, what was it, like a degausser for a it hard drive? It was drives? a hard drive eraser. Yeah. And it was, it. I remember looking at the website for this thing. And it, it, it's still out there. If you go to Mondays and look, it, it's there. I'm looking at this, you know, you just stumble across these products. And I'm staring at this product. And they want 30000 bucks for it. Yeah. And I'm like, 30000 bucks. what is exactly this thing does? What is it? Right. And I'm looking at the pictures of it. And it's a box with a door. And no and, power cord. Right? Well, that's what I eventually figured out. There's no <laughs> switch. There's no light. There's no power cord. It's just a door. You're supposed to open the door. I find the manual for it, right, online. Yeah. You open the door. You slide the drive in. You close the door. You wait 15 minutes. You open the door. You slide the drive back out. It's erased. That's so funny. Like, These guys are selling a magnet <laughs> for, for $30,000. <laughs> that takes balls. It does. What are you thinking? <laughs> you got but, big ones. But it reminded me of this killer magnet from Goliath. Right. So I just sort of, I just literally told the tail off the cuff. It was a great story. Oh, man. Richard, I can't tell you how much fun this has been for me. I mean, this isn't a regular show, but, you know, this is this is what Richard and I sound like when we just hang out. So <laughs> I remember the, the first Sleepless in New York. Right. Back in September. Yep. And I my flight was all messed up, and I got in late. And uh, hurried over, met up with all the guys, and there was a, a bunch of folks there, and and you and I are there, and I mean we're friends, so we're just sort of ca- you know casual, and you know I was, you remember I was grumpy. Yeah, I well, was, you were missing a really good party back home. Uh, there was yeah, it was a party back <laughs> home, and I wasn't real happy, and so we're walking down like Forty Second Street, right? And and you asked me some question about another show and so forth, and we and I started going on, and in the middle of it, somebody I we hear behind us it goes, "Wow, they sound just like they sound on the show." <laughs> That's right. <I'm, laughs> I know. It. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm listening to .NET Rocks. Well, guess what? Well, you it's are. Yeah, just the two of us talking. Okay, man. I think we're I think we're at the end of the show. So thanks, Richard. That was oh. great. No you problem. are truly an amazing individual. I hope you know that, and I hope the listeners know. You are not an ordinary human. <laughs> well, in 200 shows in, when do I stop? I don't know. I don't think I'm going to. Excellent. And continued good luck with Run As Radio. 
That's a it's a great show, and you guys are doing a great job. Yeah, you, you bet. All right, we will see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 